Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews 13. We'll read one verse. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ, the same. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the word of Christ. And we pray that you will teach us what it means to have Christ as our Lord and Savior. What it means for Christ to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. For we ask in his name. Amen. Well, we have one simple verse right here. It is a verse that is known by many. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. But when you think about the truths of this verse, which we will explore in just a moment, we have to ask the question, does it make a difference? What is the big deal? For example, does it matter to us, does it matter to anyone, whether God himself is the same, an unchanging God, or whether God is a changing God? Does God evolve? Does he learn and grow in knowledge? Does he grow in age? Is God the same? Is he stable? Is he unchanging? Or does he increase and change in various ways? That is an issue, and it is a real issue. It is a real issue because pagan religions, the religions of the world, they think he is changing. In fact, within Christianity, cults like Mormonism actually believe God evolves, God changes, he increases and changes in various ways. He increases, for example, in knowledge, they believe. Mormonism teaches that. That is the so-called Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's what they teach, LDS, they say. They believe God changes. Another example of this would be what is generally known as Arminianism, which is manifested in many, many churches not in cults like Mormonism, but in many denominations. In Arminianism, they have to assert certain things about God that cause God to be not a God who has control and stability and power to control everything that happens, but God increases in knowledge or increases in understanding as humans use their will to do whatever they want. That is, God may know, maybe he might not know, what you and I are going to do with our wills, our free wills, they say, day by day. And God doesn't have the ability to make sure certain events are going to happen in our life or not. He does not have that ability. They believe. They actually believe in in this way. So these are certain implications of this one verse. Is God the same or is he not the same? Another issue that is relevant in this verse is whether Christ is the only way of salvation. Is Christ the only way of salvation from the beginning of the world until the end of the world? From the time of Adam and Eve, Abel, Noah, Abraham, so forth, all of the generations of the past and all of the future generations, however long the earth remains, is Jesus Christ the only way of salvation? Of salvation. That is, did Adam believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for his forgiveness of sins? 
Did Noah believe in the coming of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins? Did Abraham believe that? Did Moses? Did David? Did they all believe this? And in the future, and even currently, today, people who are in remote places who never hear the gospel, who don't have access to the Bible, who never have met, they've never met a Christian, what about them? How are they saved or not saved? Is Jesus Christ the only way of salvation for them too? These are real questions and issues that come up. And many people, the vast majority of people say, Jesus is not the only way. They say the very opposite. They say, there's no way Adam believed in Jesus. There's no way Abraham believed in Jesus, they say. And because that was not the case, that means today people don't have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. They can believe in whatever else they want to believe, and they'll still go to heaven. Since they say, Abraham never believed in Jesus, then why are we insisting today people have to believe in Jesus? They make that connection. However, if their assumption is wrong, that Abraham did not believe in Jesus, then their conclusion is wrong, that today people don't have to believe in Jesus. And so we do have very important implications related to this one verse. Now, why is this verse here? Why is this verse here? Remember, for 12 chapters, he has exhorted us and taught us sound theology in relation to the person and work of Christ for 12 chapters. And in 13, he is telling us certain exhortations about how we ought to live day by day, which he has not mentioned in in a lengthy uh, fashion in the past, in, in his earlier part of the letter. Now he is mentioning some of these things. But right in the middle of the, this exhortation on proper ethics or morality, from chapter 13, verse 1, all the way through chapter 13, verse 19, from 13.1 to 13.19, here in the middle, he's reminding us of the basis of our morality, the basis of our ethics, the basis of it. If God is the same, if Jesus Christ is the same, if the way of salvation is the same, then the ethics are the same. If the nature of God, the character of God, what God believes is good and, and evil, then that if that is the same in God himself, in, especially in the face of Christ, if that is the same, then the way we live, that is, Adam should never commit murder. Adam should never worship an idol. Adam should never commit adultery, things like that. Adam should never do that, and we should never do that. This is why it's here. And also specifically, because in the next paragraph, verses 9 and following, 9 to 14, he's about to have a lengthier exhortation about foods. About foods. So he's trying to say, if we believe the gospel our perspective or our attitude about this should be the same. All right? So, 13 verse 8. Jesus Christ. This is the typical name of Christ. During his ministry, he was usually called Jesus by others. And then after his ministry, typically, not exclusively, but Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, other names and titles are attached to the name Jesus. Now, the name Jesus, it is a typical name. 
or it was a typical name in the period of the, uh, of the Bible. And even today in certain cultures, the name Jesus remains, such as in the Spanish culture, some sons are called Jesus. Now, in English, it looks like Jesus, but they pronounce it differently. However, it is the same name or same word. It's not that they believe that their sons are Jesus, but that they are using this name, which is a common name in the Jewish um, society. So, and also now, at least in the Spanish society as well. The name Jesus is the from the Greek language and into other languages and then finally English, from Greek and then other languages such as Latin and then into English. And though the Greeks would not have pronounced it Jesus or the Latins would not have pronounced it Jesus, that's the way English pronounces it. This name from Greek and Latin actually originally comes from the Hebrew Old Testament. And that name is in the long form Yehoshua or short form, Yoshua. And there, that short form is like the word Joshua, because from Hebrew into English, the name Joshua. Joshua was a, a servant of Moses, and then he succeeded Moses, right, in the book of Joshua. That's where his name is. And he, as well as some a few others, had that name in the Old Testament. So Joshua, his name is the same name as this name, Jesus except Joshua's name did not go through Greek and Latin and into English. Okay? So, this is the name. Now we have to ask, what does this long name, Yehoshua, mean in Hebrew? In Hebrew, the long name means, the Lord is salvation. The Lord is salvation. The very name indicates something of a typology or something of an anticipation, something of a prophecy that is they knew that their salvation depended on the Lord and they also knew that Jesus Christ would come into the world who is the, our salvation. Now, something similar to that, something similar to that is found in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 in reference to the name and salvation. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. 1, 21. Matthew 1, 21. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why Jesus? For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Call him Jesus. Why? Because a Hebrew speaker would know when you say Yehoshua or the short form Yoshua, it would mean the Lord is salvation. So here he is told, this is Joseph told by the angel, he's told, call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Further, when we think of the name Jesus, often or sometimes in the Bible, he's called Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene or he shall be called a Nazarene, Matthew 2.23. This was anticipated from the Old Testament that he should be called a Nazarene. Nazareth was a place in the northern part of the land of Israel, a, a small, obscure place 
that no one would expect anyone of prominence to come from there, to hail from there. Nobody would expect that. You know how people are. If, if somebody comes from a big city, okay, then he's got some reputation. But if he comes from a small town, then he's a nobody, and why pay attention to him? This is the common human attitude. Well, the people had that too. And the, Nazareth was this place. But it was a real place. No one doubts or disputes the existence of the place, Nazareth. Now, why is this important? Because in the world, both within Christianity and outside of Christianity, there are skeptics who don't believe that Jesus was a real person. It used to be, um, a generation or two ago, atheists, they made inroads within academia, Christian academia, and Christian academia, as well as secular academia, they would laugh at and mock and ridicule the idea that there ever existed a Jesus of Nazareth. They would ridicule that. The Bible is uh, unreliable, it's not true, there's no historical resources, so on and so forth. That's what they would say. However, the Bible is true. And the Bible is written by many eyewitnesses. And there are extra-biblical, outside of the Bible, historical written resources that verify, prove the existence of Jesus. They prove that. They don't say everything the Bible says, but they acknowledge, explicitly acknowledge that he existed, that there was a Jesus of Nazareth who went about from place to place, preached, and people claim that he performed miracles, and people claim that he died on the cross, and people claim that he rose from the dead. They report it like that. There are Jewish and Roman writings that explain things like that. They don't believe it, but they report that this is out there. So, we do have evidence inside the Bible and outside the Bible. Let's look, for example, within the Bible with someone who is known to be meticulous in his work, and that is Luke. Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 and verse 1, Luke 1, 1. Dealing with the historicity, the historical, reliable nature of Jesus. Verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke acknowledges that there were eyewitnesses and servants of the word who have handed down accounts, written accounts of the things that they saw and heard Jesus do and say, right? They saw that. And then he says about himself, verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So he himself, Luke, is saying about himself that I did the research. And for whose benefit? Most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, presumably, was a new convert 
And this phrase, most excellent Theophilus, would be equivalent to the way that we, in our uh, English-American culture, when we address a judge or we address a senator, they are addressed as honorable, right? Honorable senator so-and-so, right? This is the way we speak. Well, in Roman times, they would say most excellent for a a Roman official, most excellent so-and-so. So Luke is writing to a convert, likely a convert in the Roman government, and letting him know, giving him assurance, it says in verse 4, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Giving him assurance that everything that is written here, known about Christ, is exactly true the way I'm writing it. So why would Luke do this? Why would Luke do this if it weren't true? Because Theophilus, being a Roman authority, could easily dismiss it and and say that the whole Christian thing is a sham. He could easily do that. But he exposes himself to critique. When Luke says this to Theophilus, writes this to Theophilus, he exposes himself to critique. Now, let's go to Acts, the book of Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts chapter 1. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the book of Acts. This is undisputed that he wrote the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. 1, 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus. There we have a reference to the book of Luke. That's his first account. Theophilus, his friend in the Roman government, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, verse 2, verses 1 and 2, the last part of verse 1 and verse 2, this is basically the content, a summary of the content of the book of Luke. Because if you read the end of the book of Luke, you know that he um, gave orders there, and then he ascended into heaven. Verse 3, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing Proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. There, he tells Theophilus, this is what all I wrote to you initially. Now he's going to write about what happened after that, after Christ ascended and until Paul is in Rome, under house arrest in Rome at the end of the book, that's what he's going to now write about. Some of the deeds of the apostles Peter and Paul, that's what this is all about. That's why it's called the book of Acts. In saying this to Theophilus, he's telling him that I wrote to you an account, and notice in verse 3, Christ presented himself with many convincing proofs. Many convincing proofs. Not just for um, an hour or two, but over a period of 40 days. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, he tells the Corinthians, some of whom are still alive today. So, Corinthians, you who are doubting Christ's resurrection, go and ask some of these 500 who are alive today and have confidence in the resurrection of Christ. So, we have uh, the apostle in Hebrews telling us about Jesus Christ. So this is the Jesus Christ he has in mind. 
Notice also the second name he gives him, name or title, which in the book of Hebrews is the name Christ. Christ. Christ, what does Christ mean? Why does he call him Christ? Well, this word, it occurs in the Old Testament. It occurs in the Old Testament, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, and other places. The word Christ is there in reference to this Jesus Christ. It, it appears. So it's not a new name. It's not a novel name. It's not an invention of some zealous Christians after the, the time of the apostles or during the time of the apostles. It's not that. It is a, a word embedded deeply in the Old Testament, all the way back at least as far as 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, and other places. So what is this word? This word Christ is a translation of a Hebrew word that we say Messiah. The Hebrew word for Messiah in English comes out or transliterated as Messiah, but translated into Greek, it is Christos, and from Greek to English, it's simply Christ. So Messiah in Hebrew, in Greek it's Christ, and it comes into English from the Greek. So this is the word Christ. And what does the word mean? What does the Hebrew word mean that is translated into Greek and comes into English? It means anointed one. Anointed one. Anointed in what sense? Anointed, that is, God pours oil over the head of Christ for the three positions or the three offices he holds. The three positions or the three offices that Christ holds, he is anointed to be fulfilling all three in one person. Throughout the Old Testament, except in the case of Melchizedek, it, throughout the Old Testament, except in the case of Melchizedek, likely, there was no one individual who was able, permitted legally by God, to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. They could not be a prophet, a priest, and a king. Only Christ is the anointed one who perfectly fulfills all three offices in one person. Only him. Only him. For example, David was a prophet and a king, but he was not a priest. He could not go into the temple or tabernacle to offer sacrifices. He could not do that. And there's other examples of that as well. Samuel, for example, he was a prophet and a priest, but not a king. He was not on the throne. Samuel was not. He was only fulfilling two offices. But in the person of Christ, he's all three. Now, the proof of that in the book of Hebrews. For example, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says, And he, Christ, is the radiance of his glory, of God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, of God's nature, the Father's nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, meaning his powerful word. That's who Christ is. Then, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that imply? It implies he's a king. Right? We call kings your majesty. His majesty, your, her majesty, we call kings that. Well, God is a king, and he has another king right there, 
uh, by his right hand. Further, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. If we are in Christ, Hebrews 12, 28, toward the end of the chapter, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. There, we are a part of this kingdom. Well, who's the king of the kingdom? It's Christ, who is at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there we know Christ is anointed and appointed to be the king of kings. Then, him being a prophet. Is Christ a prophet? Indeed he is. Notice with me in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. When Christ came into the world, when he came in his incarnation, he spoke the word of God, did he not? Well, who is it that hears the word of God from God himself and then announces it to the people? Who does that but a prophet, right? Prophets and apostles do that. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. Hebrews 2, 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord? It was confirmed to us by those who heard. Well, who's the Lord there? He means the Lord Jesus. So this great salvation, the gospel was spoken through the Lord and then by his apostles. Confirmed, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So he's mentioning the Lord, Jesus, as a speaker of the word of God, which means he's a prophet. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus being an apostle. 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostles, the apostles were those who heard the word of God and announced it to the people. The apostles were equivalent to the prophets of the Old Testament. The difference between the prophets and the apostles had to do with the apostles being personally acquainted with Jesus. However, their roles were the same. They heard the word of God and they announced the word of God or preached the word of God, wrote it and preached it to the people. The prophets and the apostles heard the word from God wrote the word from God, and then preached the word from God to the people. And the difference between Old and New Testament has to do with apostle being the chosen word God has for the apostles of the New Testament because they were personally acquainted with Christ. Therefore, apostle. And then it says in verse 1, Jesus himself is an apostle, or Jesus himself is a prophet. Why? Because he came from heaven to earth, and he delivered the word of God from heaven to earth. And lastly, is Christ the anointed one a priest? Yes, Hebrews 3 1 says so. It says he's our high priest. And that has been what he has focused on throughout this letter the priesthood, the high priesthood of Christ. Not that he's not mentioned his other roles, but his high priesthood has been his focus, especially from chapters 5 to 10 of this letter. So Christ is a prophet, priest, and king. So if he is a prophet, we should listen to his word from God, not anybody else's word. If he is a king, we ought to obey his laws, not anybody else's laws. And if he is a priest, we ought to understand that he served as a priest for our redemption, for our salvation, and no one else 
can give us that salvation. That's why he is called Christ. He's our prophet, priest, and king. Continuing in Hebrews 13, it says, is the same. Jesus Christ is the same. He is the same. Why the same? Why does it say this, the same? Well, in order to emphasize the fact that he doesn't change. He doesn't evolve. He doesn't morph into something else. He is the same. He is reliably in his nature, in his character, in his uh, uh, deliverance or expectation of morality and ethics. He is the same. He does not change in those ways. Hebrews chapter 1, he has already used this phrase to identify him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Hebrews 1, 10. God the Father is speaker. He is the speaker here. And this part, verse 10, is a quote from Psalm 102, 25 to 27. And so in Hebrews 1, 10, we'll read, the Father, God the Father, says this about His Son, Jesus Christ. 1.10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle you will roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Now, if God the Father says this about his Son, it must be true, correct? That is the highest authority. And the Father, calling his Son Lord, verse 10, identifies him as the creator of the heavens and the earth, and not only as the creator of the heavens and the earth, but also the fact that the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. And who will destroy the heavens and the earth? Christ will. Upon his return, he will destroy the heavens and the earth. And he will do all of this. It says, as a mantle, you will roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed. So creation is changeable. Creation does change, right? However, not Christ. The Father says, but you are the same. Like Hebrews 13, 8. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same. And your years will not come to an end. The sameness of God has to do with his unchangeable nature. In Malachi 3.6, God says of himself, I, the Lord, do not change. God does not change. Christ does not change. He is the same at all times. Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. He uses uh, uh, phrases, phraseology that's similar to what we have. Isaiah 43, verse 10. Isaiah 43, verse 10. The Lord speaks, and he says to his people, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. 
It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity, I am he. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? There's much to say in this passage. He's declaring in verse 10, telling the people of Israel, my people, my witnesses, you, you know all this. You know very well all this. I want you to understand, uh, know, believe, and understand the following. I am he. This is an Old Testament way of saying that he is the same God. He's the one, same, unchangeable God. He does not evolve. That's why he says in verse 10, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. In theology, um, one says there is no infinite regression of gods, and there is no infinite progression of gods. God is God. He remains the same. There was no God before him, and there's no God after him. It's not as though the God of this world had a father who had a father who had a father. There's no infinite regression, and there is neither no, no infinite regression. Uh, I'm sorry, progression. There's no regression and there's no progression. That does not exist. This is one example of that statement. There's no God before me, there's none after me. Verse 11, I even I am the Lord, and there's no Savior besides me. There's only one Savior who is the Lord for all time, is what his statement is here. He says, there is no strange God. There's no one else who can declare. There's no one else who's got power to act. There's no one else who does this. Verse 13, from, even from eternity, I am He. I am He. Now, to make it clear that this also, the statement also not only applies to the Father, but also to Jesus Christ, the Son. The Son. Let's turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 24. John chapter 8, verse 24. I said therefore to you, that you shall die in your sins... For unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. He's telling the, his critics, his skeptics and persecutors among the Jews, he's, he's telling them, I said therefore to you, he, he has spoken this way and they don't believe it. So he's emphasizing it, you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. There is no salvation if you believe in a different God. If you believe in a changeable God, then you will die in your sins. You have to believe in who the true God is, who is eternal and unchanging. He is stable and reliable in his nature and in his character. And that nature and character, he expects us to understand. And in accordance with his ethics or his morality... The, the laws that he insists that we keep, they remain the same. That's his point, Jesus' point. He identifies himself as this. So when the scripture says 
that Jesus Christ is the same, it has reference to that. Now, a clarification on this point. Jesus Christ did not always have a body. He did not have a human body at all times. He had a human body when he materialized the body miraculously during the period of the Old Testament. Because at certain times, on certain occasions, he would come in human form temporarily to appear to certain people. One of the clearest examples of this is to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. Christ, along with two angels, came and appeared to Abraham in a temporary physical body because the text says in Genesis 18 verse 1 that three men, uh, one and following, that three men appeared to Abraham in the heat of the day. And then later, like in Genesis 19 verse 1, it calls two of those men angels. But the third one who appeared in human form, just like the angels appeared in human form, was Christ. And he's called the Lord several times in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. And in chapter 18, he has a dialogue with Abraham, telling him about some things to to come. But also in chapter 18, he eats a meal along with the two angels with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham goes and he kills uh, a calf. He brings it and it's prepared. Sarah makes it, cooks it, and Christ... And the two angels, they eat that food. They eat bread, they eat the meat, they drink milk, and they eat curds. They all did this, the three of them, right there in Genesis 18. So that is an example of a temporary manifestation of a physical body by Christ. He did so along with those two angels. So this happens on occasion throughout the Old Testament. But his incarnation wherein at that occasion he obtained a permanent physical body, happened when he was born into the world. We call that the first coming of Christ. In the first coming of Christ, that's when he assumed a permanent physical body. I say permanent physical body because he did have a body from the time he was conceived in the womb of Mary until his death and resurrection. He had a body. But that resurrected body, physical body, was now transformed and immortalized. That is, it was a mortal body susceptible to death between his conception and crucifixion. But upon his resurrection, it is now an an immortal body, no longer susceptible to death, disease, corruption, decay, nothing. No evil, nothing. Nothing can happen to the immortal, glorified, resurrected body of Christ. And that is our hope too, that just as it happened to him, it will, be with the, it will be the case with us as well. But he still has a body. He still has a body, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, yeah, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That's the glorified, resurrected body. By the exertion of the power that He has to even to subject all things to Himself. There the Apostle t- tells us, well, now we have a humble, mortal body, 
But then when Christ returns, we will have a body like his that is a glorified body because Christ has the power to transform mortality into immortality. So in that way, Christ, he was different. His body, his human nature part was different. Then, our last phrase in Hebrews 13, 8 has to do with the statement, yesterday and today and forever. Yesterday and today and forever. I, I believe from this phrase, we have to conclude, along with the first part, Jesus Christ, that we have to conclude that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. That is, Adam, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, all the rest of the saints of the Old Testament, all the people of today, and all the people of the future, the only way of their salvation is in Jesus Christ. The only way. The only way. For example, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. Titus 1, verse 1. 1, 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. In verses 2 and 3, he's telling us that he promised these truths of salvation long ages ago. Long ages ago, but at the proper time he manifested it. And when he manifested it, even his word, it is this proclamation with which Paul is entrusted. 2 Timothy, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Just back a couple of pages. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to uh, called us with the holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher he has similar words here that our salvation is based in eternity. Based in eternity, granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, verse 9, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this purpose or plan of God existed from all eternity, and has been accomplished or manifested in the time of the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, when he assumed a human body, a human nature. So, then the question arises, is it clear in the Bible that the saints of the Old Testament actually did believe in the coming 
death and resurrection of Christ for their forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Did they actually believe in this or did they not? Was their faith in God an ambiguous, vague faith? Was it ambiguous or was it specific in terms of the object, the person in whom they had to have faith had to be Christ for their salvation? We have to ask that question because if we get the answer wrong, if we say they believed in something else or someone else, then that would mean that since they were saved in other ways, we can be saved in other ways, correct? But if they were saved the same way we are saved, then that has to be the case with everybody, correct? So a a few verses uh, quickly will will be John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life consists of what? Knowing God and Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father. Now, was that the case? Is that means of eternal life the case only after Christ came in his first coming or even before his first coming? We know another familiar verse, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. When Jesus said that about him being the only way of salvation, he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. The no one is the no one only Jesus' disciples only the Jews of the first century, only Jews throughout history, or does he mean Jews and Gentiles between his first and second comings? Or when he says no one comes to the Father but through me, does he mean that he is the way of eternal life in every generation, even in the Old Testament, and even now and forever? I think he means yesterday, today, and forever, like our verse says, Hebrews 13, 8. Yesterday meaning from the beginning of the creation of the world, Today, in our generation and in the future and forever, he is the only way of salvation. So let's see from a few examples. Please now turn to Luke chapter 24. Let's see a few examples of how Christ and his apostles actually assert this truth that they had to be saved, they had to know and be saved from the time of the Old Testament onward. Luke 24 This incident is on the road to Emmaus. That is, after Jesus rose from the dead, he meets up with two disciples and they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him because God prevented them from recognizing Christ. So God prevented them from recognizing Christ temporarily so that Christ could teach them some things and even confront them. Okay, so to teach them and to confront them. So after... Christ meets up with these two disciples and they dialogue about the recent events of Jerusalem. It says in verse 25, these two disciples are amazed to hear the report that Jesus rose from the dead. So verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? and to enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Firstly, in verse 25, he rebukes them for being foolish and slow of heart to believe. But it wasn't foolish and slow of heart to believe in all that he and John had been preaching, or he and Peter, James and John the apostle were teaching, 
or the 12 disciples were teaching, right? He's not saying that. You should have believed what I was telling you during my ministry. He didn't say that. What did he expect them to believe? All that the prophets have spoken. That's the prophets of the Old Testament. We know he means that because it's Moses. Verse 27, Moses and all the prophets, which means he started in the book of Genesis and worked his way throughout the Old Testament to explain what to them. You mean you didn't know this? Come on, I taught you this, but the prophets, you trust the prophets, I'm just a stranger, I just walked up to you on the side of the road. So you don't know who I am, well, you should just listen to the prophets. You know they are reliable and trustworthy. You have faith in them. So why don't you listen to those prophets, verse 26? Was it not necessary? Necessary, why? Because God ordained it, and he had the prophets write about it. For the Christ to suffer, that is his crucifixion, his death for our sins, and his glory. That is, he would rise from the dead, manifest his glory for 40 days, ascend into heaven, reign in heaven, and come again in glory in his second coming, have a day of judgment, resurrection of everyone, and all eternity where we worship him in his presence forever. That's his glory, right? He said the prophets of the Old Testament explain all this. And you should know this. Don't believe me because I'm a stranger to you. Later in this incident, he opens their eyes and then they recognize Jesus. But in this context, Jesus is a stranger to them. So he's not saying, just believe me. He's saying, look, look in, in, the, in the Bible. Look in the Old Testament. Look from Genesis to Malachi. It's all right there. All there. Now turn a few pages to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. At the end... Verse 39, 539. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The problem they faced was, starting in verse 39, they were searching or studying the scriptures, but they were missing the main point of the scriptures. The main point is the main person of the scriptures. The main person is Christ. 39, these bear witness of me. These testify of me. These are pointing and saying, this is the one. You should put your faith in him, Christ. But, verse 40, they were unwilling. They were unwilling to come to Christ to have eternal life. And what prevented them from coming to Christ to have eternal life? Glory from men. Glory from men. They received glory from each other. That is praise and flattery from one another and this often, by the way, it happens commonly in, in our culture. It happens commonly in church, but it happens commonly in academia. 
in academia, Christian academia, it happens commonly that the colleagues or the professors, they pat each other on the back uh, about the things that they know or the things that they say, the things that they write. They do this all the time, and it's man-glory constantly. It's man-glory constantly. And this is human nature, though. It's human nature because we all do this, and we have to reject it. But when we do it to a destructive point, what happens? There's no eternal life. How is it that we trust people when they come in their own name, but we won't trust Christ or the Word of Christ when it's teaching us the truth? So he says, who's going to be the one to condemn them? Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before my before the Father. Don't think that I'm the one, like, as though it's just him and nobody else that they respect. They don't respect Christ. So Christ is saying, the one who's going to condemn you is the one that you say you respect. It's going to be the one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. You say, you attach yourself to Moses, but you don't even know the main thing Moses preached, the main thing Moses wrote. You don't even know about that. You are so blind. You attach yourself to Moses instead of me, Christ, but you should actually consider what Moses actually taught. He taught about me, the Christ. Verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you see, they claim to believe Moses, but if they truly did believe Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because Moses wrote of Christ. Moses wrote of Christ. So if Moses wrote of Christ, he believed in Christ. And if you say you believe in Moses, you will believe in Christ. Moses pointed to Christ in 47. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They truly don't believe Moses' writings. That's why they don't believe Christ's words. Christ is asserting that in harmony, what Moses wrote and what he spoke are together. They are in harmony. There's no contradiction. What he wrote and what, he, and what Christ spoke are in harmony. And yet, people wonder and they, and they say, no, Christ is okay now or Christ is okay for us. Christ is okay if you're Christian. Christ is okay if you live in the United States but you don't have to believe in Christ if you live elsewhere or if you believe uh, something else. No. Or if you're a Jew, you don't have to believe in Christ. Well, he's addressing the Jews right here. He's telling the Jews, the Jews have to believe in Christ and Gentiles have to be believe in Christ. Everyone has to believe in Christ. Why? Because he is the one yesterday, today, and forever. We must believe in him. So this one verse is a very, very important verse. Let's recover the truths of this one verse. Let's re memorize the verse. Let's repeat the verse. Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, yes, and forever. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth that we have learned. Thank you for this word. We pray, Lord, that we will attach ourselves to Christ, cling to Christ, believe in him, have full conviction. And Lord, when we read your word, may your word come alive because Christ is the center of it all from Genesis 1-1 until the very end. May we understand this. May we understand that our salvation is only 
in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for glorifying him. Thank you for sending him, our Father. And thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit to understand these truths. May we truly, truly believe them and be saved and help others to be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.